This is the Blackout Podcast. Welcome to the Blackout Podcast, where I get to talk to amazing people doing amazing things. Um, and I'm super lucky and happy to have my friend Jackie Torrance here. Uh, I have an narrative film background, and your watching your films have actually inspired me. And I think I'm slowly getting to making documentaries. I think, you know, with narrative, you have all this control. Uh, what do people say? How you light it? Where we shoot? What time of day? You know all that stuff. But with documentaries, more organic. Well, it's different, isn't right? it? Hi, by the way. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah. Well, I actually come from the world of fiction storytelling. Oh. I started in fiction storytelling way before I got into documentary. Yeah. Documentary filmmaking. I've only been doing for the last five or six years. Hmm. Documentary. I've only been doing for the last ten years. The first four years of my documentary work was in radio documentary, which I still love. And uh, and then basically for the last five years, I've been in documentary film and have done about six films in that time and uh, we'll be starting my seventh. Uh, but before that, I started in um, poetry. I was only ever going to be a poet. And uh, then I did fiction storytelling. And then by accident, I started writing for theater. Mm -hmm. And when I started writing for theater, I started really also by accident acting in theater. And that led to me uh, being asked and also looking for more opportunities to write and act in uh, television and film. Mm. And um, I'm basically just a gal who can't say no when it comes to story. So I'll uh, <laughs> I'll say yes in whatever form it wants to come to me. Oh, my introduction sucks. <laughs> so thanks for doing that. <laughs> um, uh, okay, well, so the one I saw that actually gripped me was, uh, well, all of them are gripping, but the one I saw, the most recent one I saw was My Week on Welfare. Is that what it's yes, called? Yes, yeah. And I saw it, uh, it was at the library, and it was an event where, you know, would see the film, then there was a talk after, right? And it turns out it was a talk about the people actually on welfare, just talking about their experience. And <clears throat> I'm Nigerian, right? And I moved to Canada, and Canada is like, it's bright and shiny, and it's great, and it's actually changed my life, right? Yeah. But there are things that, we really don't talk about it. and I think that that was the beauty of that documentary for me because I, I remember I, I can't say word for word but there was a scene I think it was like day three or four and you had just four slices of bread left and then you had to bring yeah so this is for breakfast and this is for and I'm, it was heartbreak I mean it was powerful and it was heartbreaking at the same time that's excellent I I can jump right in there with a number of things. Um, uh, I don't think uh, in Nigeria they don't talk about when people need help or assistance, financial assistance, and we're not good talking about it here either. And um, so My Week on Welfare was a documentary that I did uh, through my company, Peep Media. It's me and producer Jessica Brown. We're based here in Halifax. We've been formed since 2012. She is a producer who had about 15 years' experience in the industry 
before we started working together and then we were hired to work on a gig together. We enjoyed working together so much we formed a company in 2012. And our first documentary was a, a documentary film called Edge of East, which was examining kind of offbeat East Coast subcultures. And our second documentary was a documentary film called My Week on Welfare. And that came about, the concept for that came about was that I would spend a week living with two different Nova Scotians who are currently living on income assistance. And um, I wanted to pick two people who one might be the kind of person you might expect mm-hmm. to be on welfare mm-hmm. and one would be the kind of person Surprise. you wouldn't expect to be on welfare. Yep. And both of them defied uh, all the stereotypes. Um, so I think what allowed me to be able to uh, to to do that and kind of have people on the system trust me because it's one thing, you know, we, when we were looking for people who would allow me to live with them and have a, fa- a camera crew come into their home mm. and to tell the world, essentially, I'm on income assistance, that takes a really special kind of person. Mm. And I think one of the ways we were able to do that was I myself had been on income assistance. I was a teenage welfare mother. Mm. I'd actually come from a middle class, um, white middle class home. And uh, having a baby as a teenager was not supposed to be part of my demographic story. Mm. And uh, I I got knocked up as a teen and, and had my kid and needed a way to feed my kid while I was going back to school. And so we were on the system for about three years. And it was such a shock to be on welfare. I think the uh, the the very first person's stereotypes I had to overcome about what kind of person goes on welfare were my own because mm. um, I was shocked to find myself there and ashamed to find myself there and embarrassed to find myself there and didn't know at the time that, of course, the majority of people who find themselves on income assistance are just, of course, regular people who've been caught in a combination of circumstance. Mm. But we as a society and government forms policy, we have this idea that anybody who's on welfare, it's because there's a moral flaw in their character. They're a person who makes bad decisions or they're trying to scam the system, Mm. uh, which is actually – I can go on all sorts of bents about income assistance. You know, 3% of the people nationwide who are on income assistance actually uh, commit welfare fraud. Um, 22% of the people don't declare goods when they go across the border. So in terms of the big boogeyman of welfare fraud, it's it's actually very small. Mm. Um, so I knew my own background of, of being on the system and what I had learned about that. It was an incredibly formative experience for me mm. about how you're treated in society when you're perceived to be someone who's the lowest of the low. Yeah. It's quite eye-opening, mm. especially how you're treated by people who you think are going to be your allies. Like, you know, I, I encountered um, systematic abuse in all sorts of places, in the education system, in the legal system, in the medical system, simply because I was on welfare and people thought they could treat me a certain way. Mm. Um, so when I, when we were doing this documentary, I felt that my experience meant that we kind of had a very singular in to be able to go to people who are currently on the system and say, we want to do a film that actually um, it, it talks about the reality of what the actual reality of what it's like to live on welfare mm. versus the stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And I'm someone myself who was on the system, so I'm not coming at it from any distance. I, I'm not kind of and – and I'm not kind of poverty slumming like I have. I've been there and I know the reality. So they were these were people who the people who agreed to be in the film were incredibly courageous, mm. incredibly generous people mm. who really took a leap of faith with me and 
that film has played so many different places and so many different institutions. Like the social work school uses it, the legal aid school uses it. It's and the people who were in the film mm. have. Uh, often gone and done um, they've gone to the screenings and they've done question and answer periods afterwards and there's a local um, low income group uh, in the province called Benefits Reform Action Society mm. you can find them on Facebook they're under uh, Benefits Reform Action Society or BRAG for short they're mm. also on Twitter and they've now been using the film for the last couple of years where they'll set up public screenings for free and then afterwards they will have a first voice panel so people yeah. from, from the horse's mouth so to speak, people who instead of politicians talking about them mm. or any one of us who think what people on welfare should do to get their lives together, mm. it's actually the people, first voice people talking about um, what these policies mean for the reality of their lives. Mm. So, And that's amazing because that's to, to have your work um, be used and affect people and people want to see it and then they can also use it to try and make other people understand something they haven't understood before. Yeah. What more could one possibly want as a storyteller, right? It's super powerful and I was actually a brag event that I went to and uh, the person that has two master's degrees, I can't remember his name right now, but he was in your film. He he did a talk Aaron's, right after. Aaron Spidal, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, him, yeah. He did a talk right after that was shocking. Uh <laughs> you know, you you wanna. What are my taxes really doing? When you hear the stories, that's what I kept thinking. You know, it was shocking. It, it felt if if someone decides to go, uh, well, if someone gets to the point where they feel this is the best option for me, they wouldn't be what I, I like. How you use the uh puppets to tell the story of what people say oh they are just gambling or spending it on drugs and stuff like yes. this um someone like that actually there was a there was a line he said actually you asked him he was talking about his medicine right because mm -hmm. he some uh he has some kind of subsidies well, on some. I wanted Aaron to be in the film because he's a white, middle-aged, educated man. He's the demographic you wouldn't expect to be on welfare, and he's on welfare. Yep. Now, he's also disabled, so that's the other thing that we don't know about the reality of who's on welfare. Uh, so often when we're picking on welfare people, we're picking on single parents, largely women, yeah. who are raising their kids and getting no support, and we're picking on the disabled population because that's who's on income assistance. Mm. And so in Aaron's case, he has a number of medications he has to have every month. Some are covered and some are not. Mm. He has uh, $4 a day in which to feed himself. So he's put in a situation, as many people on income assistance are, when it comes to paying for medication, yeah. you have to pay – uh, a medication roulette. Yeah. That's probably the line you were that thinking of, it. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, how am I feeling and what medication can I afford to get filled because there's a whole bunch I can't afford to get filled. Yeah. And so, and, and, and our need to punish people on welfare, and I think we need to punish them because we need to believe it could never happen to us. <laughs> so I need to believe it's your fault and it's something you did. Mm. So, and our government policy reflects that. We punish people on income assistance. And, and the reality is it costs in Nova Scotia $2.5 billion a year to keep punitive policies in place that punish people as opposed to help them. Mm. So someone like Aaron, he actually costs the healthcare system more because he can't get the medications he needs each month. Mm. He then has health effects that periodically put him in the hospital. He has to take an ambulance. That actually costs us more than if we just 
got the man's medications filled. Right. Um, and then another one that was shocking to me was finding out that um, you don't get a bus pass if you don't see your doctor nine times or something. Like, on a reasonable number a month, right? Yeah. I'm thinking, how sick do you have to be to see a doctor nine times a month? And we don't really have doctors here, right? So, so... I'm not gonna get a bus pass if I don't see a doctor. I think nine times a month, and I'm, I'm. Or if I get that bus pass, I have to take it out of my food money. Bus pass is like eighty bucks a month or something, right? You're living on four dollars a day for three uh, meals, and it's not just that the barriers in terms of uh, transportation and healthcare. Of mm. course, it's the barriers to education. The other person in the film, Sharice Higgins, an yeah. amazing young woman yeah. who fought, who took. A Department of Community Services to the Supreme Court of Nova Scotia to get her right reinstated to go back to school to make mm. a better life for her and her child. She was amazing. She heard we were looking for people and she called us up and said, you're going to want to come talk to me. <laughs> it's just super interesting. Super interesting. I like, you know, you went to school and, and I think she graduated. She did graduate. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh man, that, that yeah. I can talk about like, I can have a podcast just talking about my week on welfare it was super interesting. And then um, I saw clips of one where you went to talk to people that um, that have seen aliens in. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> so you're talking about Edge of East. All the films, by the way, are online. Um, Edge of East and Week on Welfare and Small Town Showbiz were all done for um, CBC. Mm. So if you Google their names and CBC, you can uh, get to the CBC Media Player and, and watch them. So Edge of East was our very first documentary film that Pete Media did, Jessica Brown and I. Yeah. And... Um, so I I love things that are off the beaten path. I love intriguing visuals. And I like uh, talking to people who believe different things than myself. Mm. I don't need to believe what you believe. Mm -hmm. But I'm very interested in why you believe you what you believe. Yeah. And so uh, because this was being done, uh, Edge of East was being done for CBC Maritimes, mm. we th it had to sort of have a regional focus. So we said, we'll look at three groups that exist here in the Maritimes that are different from your standard what we call fiddles and fish, mm -hmm. right? Where um, it's sort of that, uh, it seems like there are, there are cliches of the East Coast Maritime story and yeah, yeah. Um, fiddles and fish uh, dominate a lot of it. Um, but we're more than that. And so Edge of East uh, talked to uh, three different groups. One was a group of steampunks who um, exist in Halifax. Yeah. And those are people who um, kind of... Um, have a past and futuristic aesthetic. Mm. Another group was uh, yodelers. There's actually yodelers in this province, and they are a distinct style of yodeling. Um, Nova Scotia has a distinct style of yodeling that blends Swiss yodeling and country yodeling, and that came from a Nova Scotia yodeler called Wilf Carter. And so there is um, a group of, they're farming people. They're inland Nova Scotian people who farm, mm. who have a yodeling culture. And I wanted to, I love that sound. Yodeling to me sounds like an animal howl. And I love any art form. This art form in particular devotes itself mm. to going for the crack in the voice, the flaw the thing that singers mostly are trying to avoid. Yeah. So for me, it was really intriguing to spend time with people who whose art form is devoted to the imperfection. Yeah. And then the third group of people that we looked at um, was uh, uh, the community of Shag Harbor, um, which is an 
a really unique Nova Scotia community. They believed they believed they were visited by a UFO in 1967, I believe. Mm. It's still actually the only official UFO sighting on national government books. And this whole um, very singular small community um, down at the tip of our province mm. uh, hangs its hat on that mythology. That is the thing that makes this um, community unique. Mm. And and at the same time, it's mixed with a real maritime pragmatism. So everyone in that town has a story about that UFO. Everybody's mother or cousin or whoever has seen it. And they'll tell it to you. They don't tell it to you. They don't talk to you about that story in any sort of, um, you know, mystical kind of way. Mm-hmm. It's as pragmatic as, you know, if they were going to talk to you about the time they went to the store to, <laughs> to get, uh, you know, their groceries or something. Yeah. So um, so I was really intrigued by that community and why they had sort of hung their hat on this particular um, UFO story, which actually reminded me of a faith in the mm. end. In the end, I thought UFO belief is, is not unlike uh, a belief in a particular religion. Yeah. You know, there's 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 enough to intrigue you, a little bit of truth, and then the rest you kind of have to take on faith. Mm, mm. Yeah, the, the one with the spaceship people was interesting. And, uh, the, the, you know, oh, oh and, I, and then I think after that one was, uh, what was the next one after, was Bernalangel? Did you do Bernalangel before? Before Bernalangel, our, our third documentary was, um, for Peep, was um, a small town showbiz. And that... Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. That lady with the whip and, you know what? The, I don't know. You know, do you want me to set up what it was? Yes. Before you, okay. So, <laughs> yes. so, so, small town showbiz was actually um, a, a character sketch about two people who live here in the Maritimes with showbiz dreams, essentially. And one is a woman named Diana Hart, who's uh, in her fifties, who's a pinup model who began pinup modeling very late in life in her forties and and acting and pursuing those dreams. And one is a man named Jackie Smith who um, lives in Dartmouth who um, wanted to be a rock singer and is the lead singer of a band named Razor Boy and has been had a journey with that band that has kind of spanned three decades. And I just kind of wanted to look at, um, you know, because I think, actually I think kind of in most everybody, there's some form of a showbiz dream that beats in our hearts, you know, mm. and um, not many of us have the courage to pursue that. And all and there's many of us living, not everyone lives in New York City or London and Paris, right? That most of us in this world are living in rural or small uh, places. And, uh, and, and we've all got our showbiz dreams. So mm. I, I wanted to examine the nature of that and the nature of making meaning. I remember, but you know what? <clears throat> There's a contrast with each of those characters, right? Uh, with Razor Boy, he was really on this trajectory that was kind of going up, and then, you know, he went down. He, he and, was going for fame. Yeah. The band was poised to, yes, reach and that then, next level. And then, you know, and then on the other side, there's this story with his family also. And then with the lady, um, she's doing, she's kind of following her dream. She's, She's actually known everywhere, especially our pinup career, right? But on the other hand, there's also this story with our family. <sighs> yeah, she has um, um, a disabled son. He's yeah. quite severely disabled, Mitchell. Um, he's bas- He's I think he's 28 years old now, but he will always be a, a baby mentally. Yeah. And physically, she she takes care of him as if... 
he was a baby. She, he has diapers she has to change. She, has, she literally has to spoon feed him. Yeah. And, and Diana, when I first saw Diana, she's beautiful in, yeah. in this kind of um, unreal, almost Barbie-like way, like yeah. peroxide blonde and very curvy and buxom and, and likes, you know, uh, kind of um, she, tiny, tiny outfits. Yeah. And, and you look at her, and same with Jackie, but when I saw them both, what, what of course, struck me at first was their visuals, right? Mm. He had such a rock star look and she had such a pinup look. Yeah. And um, and then as I got to know them more, uh, of course, you get to know the real human behind. We all have a persona, right? right. We all have an identity that we're throwing out there. Mm. And then there's the real story of the real human behind that. And so for Diana, um, it's really important for her to express herself creatively, especially given the life that she has. It's um, her ability to kind of make her fantasies come true is mm. what gives her the fuel to be the amazing person she actually is in her in her exceptionally challenging real life. Oh, man, it is. You know, and man, I don't, you know, I watched that one. I actually remember it because... I saw it at a festival and I'm thinking, how do you even find these people? <laughs> That's what came to mind because, you know, um, you're right. We we have a, who people know us and who we might be, but, you know, there's not that much of a distinct difference between if you really get to know the person, then there's not that much of a difference. Well, these characters, you always find out it's like, so much depth. I I can't even imagine she's done that for almost thirty years now. Like I can't, I, you know. I, I don't have kids, so um, I mean, I guess my mom loves me. No, I guess my mom loves. She loves me, <laughs> but um, it's just. Yo, man. Yeah, I don't know either. Like, I do have a kid. My kid's an adult now because I had my kid when I was a kid, but um, uh. And one of the things that's really the most challenging thing about parenthood is it ain't about you at all. It's it's a it's a, a role of sacrifice, mm. right? Like you are not the priority. Starting with pregnancy, I remember when I was pregnant, I was never going to have kids, and I remember being kind of blown away by the by uh, the physical changes in my body. And I remember reading that if you don't drink enough calcium, your own body will leach the calcium from your teeth to give it to the fetus, wow. and and that kind of blew my mind of like, wow, for the first time in my life, my own body body's priority number one priority Someone isn't else. me yeah. that's a very singular situation to find Holy yourself smokes. in and it kind of sets up what the rela- parent-child the relationship is life. right and in diana's case i mean i'm always going to be a parent to my child mm-hmm. right whatever he needs and however i can help him mm-hmm. i'm always going to be there for him but he's he's an adult and has his own life diana um mitchell who she loves deeply she's an amazing mother too um that's her baby forever and um that is a, a particular circumstance that, yeah, I don't know how I would find the grace and strength to deal with. But but her creative expression, to me, what I observed was her creative expression and her bravery to do that. There's so many of us who want to express ourselves creatively, and we don't because we're not brave enough to, mm. right? And uh, Diana um, gets a lot of attention, some of it good and some of it bad. Mm. What are you doing dressing like that? Someone your age or anyone, you know, whatever. So it actually takes bravery to express yourself in, the crea- in whatever way it is you want to express yourself. Yeah. But, but that is the thing that gives her strength 
to mm-hmm. live the life she's living. So that's the importance of creativity and making meaning for yourself. Yeah, and, that, and the other thing that actually gets me about your film is how long do you spend with them to talk to you? Like, how long does it take from, hi, I'm Jackie, to, oh, by the way, you know, my auntie did this to me? Yeah. How how do you form that relationship? Well, it depends uh, in terms of how I find people. Sometimes, like with Edge of East, to me, the the subject came first. So mm. I I uh, you know I actually had a uh, a huge love of yodeling, and the more I investigated yodeling, that's when I stumbled upon well, one Wilf Carter, the the a big a uh, formative Nova Scotia yodeler mm. who just was an amazing artist and poet, and who kind of birthed a generation of Nova Scotia yodelers. And so so my interest in yodeling led to finding the individuals who practice this art form in this province. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the case of Jackie and Diana for Small Town Showbiz, I actually saw them on social media. And, and the first thing, their visuals are so distinct that that's the first thing that <laughs> um, I... I was struck by and then I just I basically you know was following them I was creeping them to kind of see <laughs> see who they were in their life and then and then I did what I usually do with people which is you know at a certain point when I want to make contact if I if I have in my gut a feeling of I think there's a person with a story here that intrigues me mm. um I call them up and I say I'm Jackie and I make stories and I heard about this would you come have coffee with me mm. and um and no one said no to me yet, which is awesome. <laughs> um, but also, I think um, I think uh, it's so rare that people that we see one another, right? Mm. And that people uh, ask questions of one another. I'm a really, I'm a very curious person. One way I've been able to make my way in this world is is through. Um, trying to figure out others and asking them about themselves and asking them the story of them. It helps me, it informs me, it educates me, you know. Mm -hmm. But I think generally we don't ask each other a lot of questions and we don't actually see one another uh, in a way where there's a profound connection there. Mm -hmm. And so if if I've called you up and you've been kind enough to come have coffee with me and we're having a real conversation um i'm sincere in my interest in you and your story mm. but then from that coffee com- conversation and the coffee meeting yeah how long does it take to get that level of trust because the level of trust you develop with these people yeah, i think whatever happens after the film is made you can always call them up i'm like yeah sure i'll do it because the things that revealed yeah to and you. it's interesting because afterwards actually like i still have there are, most of the people i've done stories on mm. are still in my life in some way and i actually leave that up to them i kind of feel like i do prepare like i'll be in your life i'll be in your life for an intense period of time and then i'll be gone mm. um but a lot of times uh if 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 someone wants to maintain contact i feel so fortunate that they want to maintain contact mm-hmm. um but i do i do leave it up to them in terms of that trust thing yeah it's a thing isn't it because i've had situations where so I, you know i've done also a couple of documentaries for a company here called telltale mm-hmm. and that's a little different the idea has come from um i've worked with um ed Pyle, who owns the company and aaron oaks who's the producer who, who um 
uh, has come up with the ideas for the documentaries I've done for Telltale. So the mm -hmm. idea hasn't originated from me, and they found the documentary participants. Mm -hmm. So then I kind of come in later in the game and meet the documentary participant, and I have less time than I normally would on a Peep Media project to set up a relationship, and it hasn't mm -hmm. been kind of instigated by me. So it's mm -hmm. a different kind of thing. But you still have to you still have to form a relationship, and you and you must have trust. You must. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you won't get anything authentic. So. In the case of like, um, I guess it's how you communicate, and and I also really believe in being very upfront with people, right? Like when I was talking to the um, the UFO believers for Edge of East, I, I didn't pretend I believe believed in <laughs> UFOs, right? I was like, I don't know, like, and and actually, that whether there are UFOs or not has never been kind of a question that has been on my mind, but I'm intrigued by the fact that you believe that. Can you talk to me about why you believe that? Yeah. And same with week on welfare. Um, uh, the advantage again was, you know, I've been on the system myself. I, mm. I know what that's like. And with small town showbiz with Jackie and, and Diana, uh, the other thing was, you know, like, Hey, I live in a small town and, and I have, I'm in the arts myself. Like I'm doing the same thing you're doing. Um, with Bernie Langell, which is Pete Media's fourth film, Bernie Langell wants to know who killed Bernie Langell. Yeah. I mean, um, let's pause first. <laughs> How did you come up with that title? Look, titling, you know, people that don't make films don't understand how important it is. In fact, if you create anything, the title, how, what you name that thing matters, right? It does. How did you come up with that title? I remember seeing that title like, oh my gosh, she did it again. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> how did you come up with that title? Oh, that's I mean... so nice. Thank you. Um, well, I, it just kind of made sense. So essentially the background of the story is, so I'm on Twitter one night. This is so this is how I ended up meeting Bernie Langell. Mm. Um, I'm on Twitter one night, which I actually am not on that much, and I have no skill with it either. Some people do, I don't. And uh, all of a sudden, this man—I don't even know how I found his feed—but essentially, his name was Bernie Langell, and he said, "I'm just going to tweet out the story. My family's been living with this story for 50 years. Um, I am named after my grandfather, Bernard Langell. I never met him. He died 15 years before I was." born he died in 1968 under these weird circumstances mm. and all of a sudden in a series of tweets uh, comes out this story of this strange odd death of his grandfather mm -hmm. and I called him up and I said I'm Jackie and I tell stories and would you come have coffee with me and he did um, and then we started uh, working on on making it a documentary short, which it exists as now as an 18-minute documentary short. That's killed it everywhere, by the way. I don't know. You know what? Oh, you, thank that's you so another, much. Another thing about you is that you're super humble because if I, if, I, if I even made a film that was that good, I'd be in people's faces like, oh, yeah, you know, I played <laughs> a hot dogs. I played at this. I played at... Like, it's played everywhere. Oh, that's awesome, Israel. Hey, thank wait, you. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. That's me. That's not you. <laughs> but, yeah, so, you made some good films, though. I've watched your films. So, 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 so Bernie Langell has been super successful well yeah and so the title just came from uh it just seemed to make sense it seemed like it would be an intriguing title and it is what it is right bernie langell does want to know who killed bernie langell so um so the titles work well for us and it did premiere last year at hot docs and then it's been on the film fest circuit and was chosen by telefilm actually um to be one of 10 films from canada to represent what? the country at clermont ferrand what? 
And, How uh, was that one, though? Uh, we didn't go to that well, one because you were making... we were shooting um, additional. I was shooting additional material for Bernie Langell because uh, we we're going to make it into a feature. So um, yeah. we well, couldn't I mean, go feature Clement Ferrand. But but by the way, if 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 the short did this well, people are just going to eat the feature up because I hope so. I I have no doubts. Have you seen? The, okay, of course you've seen the film. <laughs> I was just about to ask you, have you seen the film? <laughs> no. Um, but I think um, one of the things that makes uh, the film, I think my background in fiction, we started out kind of talking about where I came from, and, and yeah. I didn't start in documentary. I started in the world of fiction. Yeah. And um, so I think that if always affects uh, the, how I tell stories in documentary. Mm. I think it's a good thing that I've come from the world of fiction. Um, so in 2012, I'd actually done a radio documentary about a group of artists who create in miniature, in dollhouse scale. So, um, And when I saw their work, I thought, I want to tell a documentary story um, where I use miniature worlds for the documentary reenactments. Mm. And so I had been looking for a particular story, and I knew I wanted it to be a, a subversive story that was kind of dark. And so when I met with Bernie Langell, who was trying to figure out from the fog of family narrative um, the truth about a story he'd grown up with, which was essentially a dark family fairy tale. Yeah. I thought, this is the story in which to use that concept. So I called up three of the artists who had been in my documentary about artists who create a miniature. Mm. And I said, would you like to make the miniature sets um, for this documentary I'm working on about this man who died in 1968. Mm. So I, that is one of the, the film has kind of been um, singled out for that concept. And, um, and that was, oh, I was so, there was a point because for five years I was trying to make that concept happen. Mm. And there was a point where I thought I may not be able to do this idea and mm. ideas you, you get you, ideas, you get, you know, there's more than one idea out there. But this idea in particular, I thought, ah, oh, something in my heart is just going to ache if I don't get a chance to uh, explore this idea. So mm -hmm. I feel really fortunate that we've had a chance to do it in an 18-minute version and that it's gone over as well as it has. Mm -hmm. And I feel really fortunate to um, to be able to, to explore the idea f uh, further in a longer piece, for sure. You know, I didn't know it was 18 minutes. And that's the key to me of a good film. A good story is... You don't notice the time pass. Yeah, hopefully. And if you notice the time pass. It's like, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't know it was 18. I thought it was nine. I really thought it was oh, nine. Wow. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I, I don't know why. It was well, a difficult story to tell in 18 minutes. I'm looking forward to having more time because yeah. it's an extremely complicated story. Yeah. It's a crazy story. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, and oh, that's my question. So there's a... There's a there, you have so many folds. So there's the one about getting people to open up. And there's the one about getting agencies and organizations to open up. Because you got all these documents. Was that all Bernie? Or did you also do some oh, digging yes, yourself? Right. So, uh, so essentially in long story, so, this, so his grandfather falls down the stairs one night in 1968. And then after that, even a uh, more bizarre set of circumstances uh, take place where he uh, is a... Uh, uh, electrician engineer with the military he works on the base of cfb gagetown and after he falls down the stairs he's taken to a military hospital where the doctor in charge assaults him and says um you're going to die today langell mm. 
That's actually documented. After that happens, there's a delay in getting him um, air evacuation. He's listed as critical condition. And there's a five-hour delay in getting him transported by air to Halifax. Once he lands in Halifax, um, he's leaving Shearwater, and the ambulance goes over a set of train tracks, and it's crashed into by a train. And this man dies about 24 hours after that with only military uh, people present in the room. Mm. Um, So one of the sons of this man, Bernard Lantel, he had three sons. And one of the sons was named Larry. And he basically lived a life where he was obsessed with the case. And he collected all the documentation he could. Mm. And he discovered that soon after Bernard Lantel died, there were two military boards of inquiry. So there is – there's documentation from that. There's there's documentation from the medical examiner's records. There's documentation from um, legal papers from when the family tried to find uh, justice, legal justice in the 80s. Um, So the thing that was – and the documentation is important because you hear kind of the broad strokes of the story and you go, that's crazy. Can that possibly be? Even though Bernie Langell Jr., who – is the person now trying to find out what happened to his grandfather, mm. an extremely credible person. Um, but the story feels crazy. And then you see the documentation and you actually see in black and white uh, the testimony of, of the doctor actually saying, I assaulted him <laughs> and I said this. And um, and yeah. it lends important credibility to yeah, the story. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, no, no, no. I'm, I'm happy that... You, I remember when we met, I said it has to be a feature. Yeah, you did the whole Jackie Torrance thing. Yeah, it would be nice. You know, we're working on it. So I'm happy it's going to happen. Thanks, I'm man. so, so happy. Thank you. That's kind <laughs> And, okay, so that's Bernal Angel. Now you're Hamlet too. I did just play Hamlet in January. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, which was great. I'd never actually ever thought about playing Hamlet because, um, well, probably for the most part, because, you know, someone like me is not supposed to be playing Hamlet, Mm. you know, someone with a vagina. Can I say that? (laughs) Yes, it can. Say anything Um, you want. Yeah. So uh, I had been in a play. So I'm also an actor. Uh, So I act and I write and I direct and I'm sometimes a journalist and I do a number of different things. And, um, when I was younger, um, doing different things used to worry me. I used to think I just wasn't serious enough or focused enough on anything and I had better pick one, one lane and stay in there. And then as I, the more I did, um, a couple of things emerged. I thought, one, if, if I'm actually going to be in the arts and live on the East Coast um, and I'm able to do more than one thing, I must do more than one thing just to survive. Yeah. That's the – I think in a big city you can specialize. Here you've got to find a number of ways to pay the light bill. Yeah. And, um, and then the other thing, uh, to be able to – the consistent thing for me is story, right? So whether I'm telling stories as a director or a writer or an actor or as a journalist, the thing – the North Star that is always staying still it, that I follow is story. Mm-hmm. And actually, to, the the opportunity to be able to tell story from different perspectives, actor, writer, whatever, um, it all informs every other job I have in, in story. It's really useful. It's very useful to um, have an experience acting when you're then back in the writing room and going, right, I have to actually make dialogue that someone can actually say <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> You know, um, <laughs> things like that. Yeah. So um, so I had been in a play about three years ago called Pillow Man by Martin McDonough. And I had played um, a writer who was captured by the police in a totalitarian state. It's a great play if mm. if, uh, if you don't know it. And um, 
I had done that with four other people. We'd slap that up as a collective and we'd produced it ourselves. We essentially were a director and four actors who wanted to do an awesome play. And so we just made it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a director that I know, Ken Schwartz, who's the co-artistic director of Two Planks and a Passion. Uh, that's a theater company here in Nova Scotia. And he and his wife, Chris O'Neill, have actually built um, – over 25 years, the Ross Creek Arts Center, Center for the Arts, which is in Canning, down in the valley in Nova Scotia. And if you haven't been there, you should totally go there. It's a um, beautiful place on this mountaintop, and it is devoted to um, all sorts of artistic disciplines. And you, there's camps being done there, and you have arts residencies. And, and Ken and Chris are two uh, creative, kind, generous people who've just built this amazing thing out of two bucks and a prayer like we all do in the <laughs> arts right um and so he had come to see pillow man and he wanted to do i think a production in town because normally his uh, productions are out on the on the mountaintop in canning and uh i think he was inspired by the, the this kind of dirty indie urban collective we'd thrown up and he asked me if i would like to basically co-produce a production of Hamlet and he would direct and I would play Hamlet and I had never done Shakespeare and had never thought about really playing Hamlet and of course I oh, I said yes who would ever say no and uh but that that meant we had to build the house right I wasn't just being cast we had to build that house and so what that meant was four years of um collecting the money Indiegogo campaigns filling out grants and so on and then we uh finally got all our ducks in a row and we had a venue planned and then that venue I I know you know this we have such a dearth of spaces for artists of all kinds in the city to do anything in it's a huge problem Um, affordable spaces and then Jeremy Webb of Neptune actually stepped in and said I want to give you guys a home Um, which was amazing for us the support of Neptune was amazing they also um we were part of their family. We were on their website. The, their their additional publicity, all of those things helped us. So the that, photos in the coast were great. Oh, Corey Eisner, who's a, a photographer in the province here, um, uh, and also a musician. He's an awesome guy. He came out to. We were rehearsing just before Christmas mm. in December. We were rehearsing Hamlet at the Ross Creek Arts Center. They have this big amazing space we could rehearse in and so we were working on death and revenge and betrayal <laughs> just before Christmas, which was pretty odd and awesome and uh he's a great photographer and he came out and and immediately worked with us on on some of our ideas and took these great photos and then tara thorne wrote this wonderful piece for us we had no idea we were going to be on the cover it was amazing to be on the cover because we were putting on a long classic tragedy in January (laughs) and we thought no one's going to come and we did great we had great houses and the thing that was also really exciting was that um, man I saw people at that theater I'd never seen out of the theater before all sorts of different age demographics all sorts of people that don't normally go Um, and this concept of Hamlet um, involved having uh, the audience on the stage. So Ken, the director, has been for years now kind of exploring about blurring the line between audience and actor. Mm. And um, originally we wanted to do this production in an Edwardian house and we would do it in a dining room and so everyone would be a very small audience and basically everyone would be in the set. Mm. But uh, that we couldn't make that happen. And when we went to Neptune, we thought, okay, 
So we'll have some of the audience in the regular audience part, but then we'll have other audience members on the stage with us. And we had this long table. It was like 16 feet long. And so some of the audience were literally seated around this table. And during the monologues actually became scene partners. Like I, um, there was a couple of people who had monologues, but I had the most monologues. In fact, I joked that one of the taglines for the show should be Hamlet. Am I still yakking? <laughs> and uh, and so um, so we had audience members seated around this table, and that was Ken's concept. And originally, Israel, oh my God, the idea of this scared me so much. I was scared shitless to be playing Hamlet. Mm. I was scared shitless to be uh, doing Shakespeare. And I was scared shitless with this notion of the audience right literally there. around me. Because yeah. when you're on stage, the distance can be nice and helpful. You're out mm. there in the dark. I, I actually can't even see you with the lights, right? But now mm. you're this close to me. And and so, and also it requires, um, uh, the acting has to, it almost requires television acting and stage acting because the audience is very far away on one level and very close on another level. Mm. So it was a huge creative challenge, which was interesting. And anyway, so initially I was really scared because I thought, I don't know what anyone's going to do. Someone might speak back to me. Someone might reject me. Mm. Someone, I, I just don't know what they're going to do. And um, And then one of the actors who was in the play burgundy code who played claudius who was an exceptional claudius the cast was great great people who did great creative work and also were just great people to have in the room um and we can talk if you want about the alchemy of collaboration but uh so she said to me you should um um if you hate this if this scares you you better find a way to love it and fast <laughs> and uh, she was so right so i basically just it's that mary kay makeup philosophy of fake it till you make it so i just lied to myself and said you love the audience around you you love seeing them there and within a very short time it actually was true i mm. did come to love the audience around the table and they were different Every night, of course, and sometimes you'd be looking in the face of someone really old. And actually, one of my favorite shows, we did a Saturday matinee, and a group of children who live in a boarding house came, and the entire table. I had children from <laughs> from 7 to 14 around oh, the wow. table, and I'm delivering. I'm looking in tiny faces, and I'm delivering to be or not to be to them. And they're... They're with me. They're following. They're nodding. We're having a, a conversation in a way. Yeah. It was uh, a great experience for yeah. sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I remember you telling me about that and I'm thinking, how is that? But, you know, you had a wonderful experience. So now let's go to Radical Age because I remember asking you about the T-shirt and you told me she, she's with the lady in, in the film. Yes, that's right. So Radical Age is a feature documentary I did this year for Telltale Productions. So outside of my company, Peep Media, I've done two docu- two documentary films for Telltale. One, the first one was Free Reigns, about a woman who uh, runs a, a therapeutic horse farm, um, and uh, near Mahone Bay, um, uh, Patty McGill. She does incredible work, and the families that come there have all sorts of different communication disorders. Mm. Um, and then uh, after I did that film for Telltale, uh, they asked me to do another, which was great because I enjoy working with and for them. And 
again, the idea was Erin Oaks, this producer who works there. And she said, I've come out with this idea. I want to look at six different people, you know, who are supposed to be, I guess, senior citizens um, between the ages of like 58 and 85. Mm -hmm. And they're all involved in youth subcultures or activities that I guess are supposed to be seemed to be the domain of younger people. Yeah. And so uh, one was a 60-something-year-old skateboarder who had just taken up the sport a few years ago. One was an 85-year-old woman who um, a few years previous had started tattooing herself and now is quite covered. Another was... Um, um, a man near 60 who's a hip-hop dancer. Um, there's also a 70-year-old mixed martial arts fighter, the oldest female mixed martial arts fighter she in the world. She is scary, that lady. Yeah, like, oh, she's well, tough. You down. Yeah. She's truly radical. And uh, who am I leaving out? Um, there was Zilla, the punk singer. Um, and so we, f I got to fly to a bunch of different that places. That was a cool job, actually. Which was so I cool. Kevin, Kevin, that, that Kevin was, Fraser, the Kevin, cinematographer who's done cinematography for every documentary I've done up to this point. He's an amazing I, I person. I love working with him. Like, I'll, he's wonderful. Any yes, excuse, did the exactly. Yeah. Any excuse to work with him. So yes, while he was enough. shooting Radical Age, we were starting to do prep for Drown the Lovers, oh, okay. right? So um, whenever I'd come back, he'd be like, yeah, I just came back from England. I'm like, what are you doing? And like, yeah, I just came up from, but that, that was a cool job. Yeah, that was a cool job. <laughs> so essentially we, yeah, we got to go to California and Chicago and um, Colorado and Ottawa and London. Yeah. And we went to London to uh, spend some time with a woman called Zilla Minx, who's a punk singer of a band called Rubella Ballet. And she has sung in that band for about 40 years. So since she was a teenager and she and her partner, Sid, uh, who used to play the drums, who now plays the guitar, he is also in that band. And Zilla actually had a lot of affinity with because she she talked a lot about how punk was a do-it-yourself movement. In mm -hmm. fact, for them to find any space to play back in the day and now, like, you kind of, you build it yourself, right? And yeah. here on the East Coast, if we're in the arts, we have to build it ourselves. You have no choice. You, have, you have no have choice. No choice. So one of the things that she had also done on her own was make her own documentary, which I'm wearing a shirt of, called She's a Punk Rocker, and it's examining uh, the role of women in punk. So, um, yeah, all those people I got to meet through Radical Age were really interesting, uh, so is it done now? unique, eccentric people. It's done now. We, we shot and we prepped, shot, and posted that film in a year. What? And... Actually, less than a year. And, um, yeah, it just about killed me. <laughs> in fact, in fact, so we started shooting last... We only started shooting last December. We shot till uh, February. Then I had to write. Then we started editing last summer with Sarah Byrne. If we're giving shout-outs to people. Sarah, Sarah Byrne, amazing, amazing yeah. editor. Yeah. Kevin Fraser, amazing cinematographer. And James O'Toole uh, has also done sound on a lot of my documentaries. Um, so Sarah and I edited that thing through the summer and uh, into the fall. And then I had five days in between when Radical Age was finally done and Hamlet began. <laughs> and oh, how did you do that? No, okay, I'm sorry. How did you do that? <laughs> well, I felt really tired. But, uh, but essentially during during the 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 you know as we were getting through the final stages of post for radical age mm. i was memorizing um iambic pentameter because i uh because we only had two and a half weeks rehearsal for hamlet what and i don't know if you've heard but it's a rather long 
rather Two long and a piece. Half weeks. Yeah, so I had to, as most actors do these days now. Yeah. Actually, I had to go in with stuff memorized, or we would never. There was no, we didn't have time in rehearsal for me to also be get all that, you know, getting the text underneath my wow. belt. So, wow. uh, yeah. So for Hamlet, we had to hit the ground running. So I must say, during the run of Hamlet, I have a lot of energy, but during the run of Hamlet. When we got that show up on its feet, like essentially I would do the show, you know, for that day. Sometimes if we had a matinee, I would do two shows in a day and, and it was almost three hours each mm. each run, right? And then I was – I felt like Celine Dion. I was just home resting, trying to get my energy up to go back and do it all again, you know? Oh, man. Man, man. Um, So, Brother Cledge, is it going to be um broadcast or – well, um, it has already been broadcast. It was oh. done for the Vision Channel. Oh, um, and uh, I think Aaron is trying to find out if there will ever be any plans for it to be online. I hope so. Most things are online these days. It would yeah. be great if it did go online. Yeah, that's that's a cool one. And um, <clears throat> so what's the process now? You 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 get an interesting story. Actually, you get an interesting story or person, and there's something about a person that pulls you and you feel, okay, this is a story you need to talk about, share all that. How do you decide this is it? This is the one. I mean, you must get a few stories by now, but how do you decide which one to dig in? Uh, well, there's gotta be, I mean, there's gotta be all the signposts of a story there. There's gotta be, you know, and even in documentary, you know, there's gotta be an inciting incident. There's gotta be, um, uh, rising action. There's gotta be, there's gotta be a journey that happens. Um, so, and then it's gotta be usually a, a person or subject that, that intrigues me, you know, like with Bernie Langell, he's someone who, whose whole family has been affected by this, you know, as I said before, this dark family fable, it's, it's shaped, he talks about how it's, it's shaped his father and it's shaped his uncles and it's shaped him. And he mm. was never even present for the original event mm. and never met the person that he's named after who it happened to. Um, so things can be passed down to us generationally, you know, that we're looking now very much in the mainstream. It's finally entering the consciousness of this idea of uh, intergenerational trauma, right? Yeah. That can happen in individual families, can happen collectively to cultures. Yeah. You know, First Nations in Canada, we're examining the effects of trans intergenerational trauma. Um, so um, I certainly had an affinity with Bernie in the sense of um, um, my parents died when I was a really young child. And... Um, and there was kind of no one around to tell me the story of me. So I've, mm -hmm. I kind of, you know, my own life of finding out my own identity has been like searching in the dark and coming across pieces here and there and trying to fit the pieces together to, to figure out where you came from. Yeah. Well, that's sort of kind of what's going on there for, for Bernie, you know? Um, so usually there kind of has to be an affinity in some way or a question I'm trying to figure out. What I'd really like to do now is, um, um, uh, I, I really want to write a screenplay. I really want to write a fiction screenplay. And I, I've been lucky enough to do documentary and I've been given opportunity there yeah. in part because I'm a female and we're often more thrown a bone in the world of documentary because the money's less, right? Ah. But, um, but I do come from the world of fiction and I very much, uh, you know, I have written, you know, I wrote a short film about 10 years ago about a fetus in a jar. And I... Well, wait, you're not just... 
Okay, well, I definitely now you have to come back to talk about the fetus and the jazz story. Yeah. But you know, well, that we'll was a while that. ago. But anyway, yeah. so that's what. So basically, we're we're going. I'm going to be working on making Bernie a feature. I do a play out at Two Planks this summer, which is an adaptation of um, the Trojan Women by a young contemporary uh, Nova Scotian playwright called Gillian Clark. Mm. So I'm really. Uh, interested in doing that and I'm also trying to carve out time so I can get um, a screenplay done for sure okay I'm gonna end it with this you do yeah well you do all these things you do uh how do you make time for yourself well that I am actually that is a question on my mind these days because I know you know when work comes it's either feast or famine, isn't it? And it's so difficult to say no to work and you fear, oh my God, if I say no to you, you'll never call me again. Mm. And um, so I've, um, I do need a bit more balance in my life um, these days. I'm really feeling that quite acutely because part of being creative, all fields need a fallow period of time, right? Yeah. Where they just kind of got to sit and do nothing. And then, and then the next thing that happens is the wildflower seeds and stuff like that can grow. And then after that, you can plant a crop, right? Um, but that uh, periods of idleness and then periods of the wild flower period where it's just play time and thinking time and dreaming and scheming time. Um, all that is imperative to uh, being able to be creative. Mm. So I'm just trying to figure out myself how I can uh, do more of that. And we also live in a world where we're on 24-7 all the time. People send, I'm guilty of this, send work emails on the weekend and so, you know, in the evenings. And so I am, 2019, I am trying to carve out uh, more boundaries on that stuff, more of a balance on that stuff mm. and um, get the get the play dreaming time in more for sure. Sweet. Um, super grateful you came in today and uh, I have even more questions now so I'm definitely going to have you come back oh that's so nice thank you so much Jack. thanks Israel great to talk to you also this idea for a podcast is awesome that's a great idea thank you <laughs> this is the blackout podcast for listening.